This is Let's Talk Business with your hosts, Mark Ebinger and Heather Bain. Now, here's Mark. Welcome to Let's Talk Business, a show that talks entrepreneurship with some of the best businesses in the San Antonio area. Coming up on the show today, we're going to talk with Skylar Moon, an investor, entrepreneur, and the owner of Desire Nightclub here in San Antonio. Skylar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I like the unique way you spelled your nightclub name. It definitely gets uh, the attention online. People are, you know, when we first launched, uh, trying to figure out how does it pronounce, you know, what is it? Is, is it a, mm-hmm. Some people thought it may be like an adult club, and other people thought it, you know, was just some kind of bar. So it was a really good way to really launch and get the, the attention driven around it. Yeah, and you put the little line above on the eye of, on yeah. it, too. Makes it look uh, <laughs> exotic, <man>. yeah. <laughs> We're also going to talk with Guillermo Garza, the owner of Guillermo's Restaurant here in San Antonio. Guillermo, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm glad to be here, <laughs> Mark. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'd like to note, uh, even though I'm very proud of my last name, Garza, uh, I'm like kind of Madonna. I just go by Guillermo. Guillermo. Mm-hmm. Got it. In studio with us today is Heather Bame, a certified business coach that works with business owners to gain clarity and achieve their goals. Heather, welcome to the show. Always good to be here. I'm excited about today. And I am your host, Mark Evinger, the owner of Krukus Marketing Agency, a company that specializes in giving small businesses a competitive edge by hiring administrative and social media experts from the Philippines. Something I did, did um, so 11 months now that I've been using VA. So I started in August, and I built my business from basically nothing. I'm up to almost a quarter million in sales now. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so we're growing pretty fast. It's all about leverage. It's something that I learned to do very early on. So I didn't get trapped in a job. Yeah, there's no way you could run four businesses yeah. without leveraging. Yeah. You know what I mean? So on the business and not not in it every day. Exactly. I'm excited to talk with you about some of that stuff too. So a quick reminder for our listeners: you can catch video and podcast versions of the show anytime by visiting our website at satalkradio.com. And if you're a business owner in the San Antonio area and would like to have your company featured on the show, visit our website at satalkradio.com or call our office at 210-960-8210. That's 210-960-8210, and we can get you booked on the show. So you guys go to coffee shops, right? Every day. Sure. Every yeah, day, right? Yeah. So they have the little tip thing that they turn around, right? When you're going to pay, and they yeah. turn around and says, would you like to leave a tip? You know, it starts with, what, 10%, 15%, 20% or whatever. And I, I started thinking about this, and I'm seeing it all over the place. Yeah. And even in drive-throughs and restaurants like uh, Whataburger and stuff, they're asking if you want to round up Taco Bell. Same thing, round up. Uh, I hit a few fast food places. In oh my, yeah. My well, those <laughs> I feel like with the fast foods, isn't that usually for charity on yeah, those? Yeah, round up. Yeah, it's yeah. round up for charity, and then I have to feel like a monster when I'm like, no. <laughs> right. You, know you feel like you're like, taking ah. from children. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. South Park no, did a sure. funny cartoon where the guy was walking, going through the line, it, yeah. and he was like, "Yeah, that's hilarious." Yeah. But uh, so. What do you, Skylar? What are your thoughts on uh, this whole so, tipflation thing, as they're calling it? I mean, there's definitely a lot of social pressure around it, right? I mean, you feel it anytime you go anywhere. Um, even in the drive-through at Starbucks, you know, they've got the little credit card machine and it automatically asks you one, two, or three on there, and so you kind of feel obligated. Um, I mean, we've used it on our side of the business, and it's good for the, you know, for the employee, you know, the one that's there making the tip. But I think that people are. More so on the employee side, they're more um, kind of expecting it now, right? You know, mm-hmm. so back 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, a tip was you go above and beyond, you do the service, you provide exceptional service, and then you're awarded, you know, a tip. And now I feel like everybody's just in a state of complacency and, you know, I don't have to do 
anything above and beyond. Let me just do the bare minimum. And now I'm expected, you know, I'm going to make that extra 20% or that extra 10%. So I think that's more the problem around it. You know, I don't mind tipping, you know, big whenever there's good service and there's, uh, you know, service provided at, you know, a higher level than normal. But I don't know if it's something that, you know, business owners are now just trying to cut their cost and really pushing that hourly rate onto the, uh, to the customer. Um, but it is definitely an interesting, interesting subject. And Guillermo, you run uh, restaurants, so how's it over there in the restaurant world? So in the restaurant business, we we depend on tips, and uh, and I'm okay with it. It's it's the way we've evolved. It's 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 the way the industry has been. It's the way it's been designed. Um, now going everywhere, there's a lot of questions we can ask on why it's happening. Um, the first thing I do is when I'm presented in the case where I'm being asked to tip in, in a in a, in a in a manner I've typically not have to tip. I've been around for a little while. Um, just real quickly, just observe it. Wait a minute here. Now, I just spent $15 on one overpriced drink. Yeah. 20% of that <laughs> yeah. is, is what, three bucks? Uh, 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 do I need to tip that much? No, I'll tip a dollar, right? I typically uh, tip a dollar per drink or maybe a buck fifty per drink. Um, and with food, it's, it's flat out 20%. And then I can ask the question, well, you know, the car wash guy is asking me to, uh, to leave a mm-hmm. tip. Right. Now, whose fault is this? And I do believe we'll, we'll eventually hit homeostasis where yeah. it'll balance out. Sure. Um, but what about these companies like Square and Toast? Maybe that's a selling point to them, saying, hey, listen, vendor, we can, off- we can offer you tips really easy. And your, your, your staff is going to love it. So tipflation, I'm not sure if that was an organic uh, command, a, de- a demand that was coming for, from, from, from employees. It may have been part of a marketing tool, which it's so easy to turn around and say, this cup of coffee costs $7. You got two cups, $14. Would you like to leave more than 25% tip? Mm. Well, because the credit card companies take their percentage off yeah. the top of gross. They yeah. don't. Say, oh, tip minus in cash, yeah, and then exactly. I'm going to charge the customer on the rest of it. My big thing with with the tipflation is I understand the service industry. You serve me at the end of the service, I then provide a tip. And like, yes, I'm never, I even when the service is terrible, I tip, right. especially in a restaurant setting because that is how they make their income. Mm-hmm. But like at coffee shops, at the car wash, the tip is asked for before I even get my product. Mm-hmm. Yep. So for me, I'm like, are they going to do a bad job if I don't? Tip? Yeah, yeah. And ew. it's part of that pressure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, social pressure around it. When they turn that screen around and they're facing you, like, uh, people are watching you. I'm going to click no tip and sign <laughs> it or whatever. It's like, oh, you're that guy, right? right. I was like, come on, I'm just coming here for a cup of coffee and I want to just move on on my day. I've simply asked him. I said. Check this. Is there a mirror behind me? I said, if yeah. I don't tip you, what happens? Oh, there you go. Oh, <laughs> Just ask the yeah. question. Like, oh, okay, I, not, okay, I'll leave him a tip, but say, no tip. Mm. But, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, those are the pressures that, you know, these companies, and it's not hard to figure out. No. You know, it's entrepreneurship it, too, right? I mean, it's, right. there's also more money to be made there. You can make your employees more money. Sure. You know, I don't really know how the tip industry works when, you know, behind the scenes and where that money really goes and what, if the company's sure. keeping any, I don't really know any of that stuff. And that's a, you know, longer discussion somewhere else, but the, it is an opportunity to generate more revenue for your employees. I get it. Why would you turn away from it when it's becoming more and more socially acceptable? 
because it's everywhere. Well, we've so. got a really good example. So whenever you come into the nightclub, typically there's a cover charge, right? And so there's mm-hmm. a girl or somebody at the front door who's charging that charge to get everybody in. And so her job is mainly tipped as well. She does get a salary, obviously, but then there is, you know, a tip portion to it. And so before we would have her just, you know, either ask for the tip or it'd be on the line. Um, but it was very kind of subtle. And so she was making okay money, but it wasn't anything crazy. Well, then when we got into the swivel where it's yeah. turned around and they're then pressured in front of a line, when you got a line of customers waiting to get in, everybody's looking at you, right? Plus, you know, you got a good looking girl at the front door. You don't want to look like the one guy that's not tipping. I mean, I think her tips went up probably 4X from one day to the next. And then we just kept that practice. And yep. I mean, it's that's insane. just entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what we see as well is, is it's, there's almost a shift of liability in terms of service, now being responsible with being provided. So a great question we could ask is, hey, over the past 50 years, even with the last five years, as, as we've seen this tipflation, has service improved? No. I think it's gone <laughs> it down. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Because it's expected now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're like a bunch of little brats. When yeah. We want our money. We don't want to have to work for yeah. it. I mean, I'm not speaking for everybody, obviously. But, I mean, as a society, it seems like it's okay to act like that. Well, on the restaurant industry... From the service side, um, simply put, if you do not give them a good service, human nature is I don't care what the kitchen or if the ambiance. Or if, let's, I'm, I'm sorry, let me repeat that. The issue I may have with the kitchen, the server is going to pay the price. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Zero tip. Yeah. So, you know, the advice I would have for any one of us is spend five minutes to figure out your tip rules. My tip rules are a dollar per drink. And if I feel like it's great or I've had one too many, maybe a dollar fifty or two dollars. You know, and I don't I don't want to go on too much of a rabbit trail, but there's also the thing about people are starting to charge folks like at restaurants for that uh, credit card fee. Oh yeah. Oh, They're yeah, like if, if this it is on. the price at cash yeah. and this is a price. So that's another way right. that inflation is hitting us. Yeah. You know, we got tipflation, right? We got regular inflation, and then we got this subtle inflation that's happening elsewhere. So it's just something to kind of keep an eye on when we talk about rising costs of everything going yeah. up. So, all right, well, let's get into it. Skyler, uh, first up on the show is Skyler Moon, an investor, entrepreneur, and owner of Desire Nightclub here in San Antonio. Skyler, I'm excited to have you on the show. You even dress nice. Thank you. <laughs> appreciate that. So you have got quite the entrepreneurial. Uh, kind of background here. So, um, forty or you launched forty-two Boost mobile locations, yeah, yeah. right? That's back when you got. And we'll get into that into the cellular um, industry. Uh, sales over twenty plus million dollars a year, which is amazing. I thought I was doing good at a quarter of a million, right? <laughs> I was all, I'm a quarter million now, and twenty plus million a year. Uh, you bought a failing nightclub during COVID and 10x sales, and then you discovered a tax hack through the laundry business. And yep. I definitely want to get into that. Uh, I always like tax advantages, you know. So tell me a little bit about your backstory. How did you get involved in sales? Where did this all start? Let's move through it fairly quickly yeah. so we don't. Yeah, I'll give you the quick down. five minute rundown. Sure. Um, so when I was younger, I actually moved out of my house around 15 years old. And so you know, everything you know, was fine at home, just I was very stubborn. And you know how it is when you're a teenager and you think you know what you want and what you're going to do, and parents have a different idea for you. So, uh, so anyways, did that, and you know, you got to hustle. At some point, you got to you know, be able to pay your own bills. And you know, so I made up my mind. That's what I was going to do. 
And so finished out high school, uh, didn't go to college, but you know started mowing lawns and just doing odds and end jobs, trying to make, make, make ends meet. Ended up running over my cell phone with the lawnmower, oh. and then that's how I got into the cell phone business. So I ended up meeting <laughs> a guy that owned a uh, cricket store at the time. What selling year cricket is this? Wire. This is 2008. Okay. Yeah, that's a while back. And so met a guy who had his own shop, and he sold me a phone. And then I just got real interested in that business and saying, man, I mean, if you can make, you know, 15, 20 bucks, because I was buying phones off eBay and going to sell them to them. So I'd buy a, you know, phone for 90 bucks, sell for 120 bucks, 130 bucks or whatever. And I'm like, well, shoot, if I could figure out how to do this more often, I wouldn't have to be outside, you know, burning up mowing lawns, making 20, 30 bucks, right? It's the same profit margin, but Mm -hmm. way less effort and a lot more scalable, right? So I'm thinking, man, I got to figure this thing out. So I started working on that, figured that out, ended up opening up my first store right out of high school. Uh, off of Walls of Montgomery Road, right where the HEB's at over there. Okay. And uh, got really lucky on it. I mean, it just seemed like it was meant to be. Um, I don't know if you know much about commercial leasing. Uh, I know you know a lot about commercial mm-hmm. leasing. For an 18-year-old that has no credit and no money and has no experience and, you know, basically doesn't offer anything, just trying to put something together, it's really hard to get a commercial lease. Well, he ended up giving me, you know, a sweetheart deal, um, gave me a couple months free rent because the place was pretty shoddy and needed some work to be done to it, so... Put some uh, money on some credit cards, built up, went to Home Depot, bought, you know, all the materials we needed and basically built a store, you know, me and a buddy of mine and started off uh, doing used phones, just selling used phones. We'd buy them, you know, kind of like used car business. We'd trade them in whenever the new phone was ready. Because at that point in 2009, 2010, um, I mean, cell phones were pretty, you know, other than the flip phones, smartphones were really new. I mean, if you think about Mm -hmm. iPhone, barely got launched in 2008. So I'm writing that kind of era where people were starting to really look into trading in their flip phones mm-hmm. and getting into a smartphone, right? And so I took advantage of that wave um, and did that business for a while. Somehow one of the Boost representatives ended up coming into my store because my store wasn't like a branded retail store. It was just, What you was know, the name of it? Uh, Moon Mobile. Yeah, oh, so okay. last name's Moon, right? Why so not? Moon Mobile. It's kind of catchy, yeah. you know? Um, 90% of the business was driven through Craigslist at the time. That's back in the good old Craigslist days. Again, there was no Facebook marketplace. There was, you know, eBay was, you know, it was around still, but it wasn't the hottest thing anymore. Um, so Craigslist drew a lot of our business and, you know, had got our walk-ins that way. So then somehow one of the Boost representatives, you know, heard about our location, walked in and said, hey, do you want to start uh, selling Boost? I had never heard of it, didn't know what it was. I was like, well, what is this? You know, what's your, what's your prop? What are you trying to sell me? And he said, you know, we get, you know, branded phones, warranties. You don't have to worry about, you know, dealing with phones that are broken all the time. They're brand new. And then you make, I think it was like at the time, like 25% of whatever the customer's monthly payment was. So a customer comes in and pays a hundred bucks oh. for the bill. You keep 25 bucks. I was like, and now you're Heck talking yeah, about yeah, revenue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I said, yeah, you know, sign me up. So I signed up with them, and after a what year... What would you make on a sale of a phone? So the phones weren't much. It's about 25 bucks. So okay. About, yeah. And then you're getting $20, $25? On the recharge, depending on, the, on how much Yeah, how much the wow, monthly bill was. that's sweet, man. Yeah, it was a good deal back then. It was a yeah. really good deal. Um, and so I ran with that. So I was still doing, you know, at that point, it was what they would call like a multi-carrier phone. So you had, or a phone store, you'd have, you know, their brand, plus you were still selling, you know, other products and stuff. Sure. So after about a year, they said, hey, we want you to come exclusive with us. And I said, well, I'm making a lot of money kind of with other products, too. So I, lo- I promised them a secondary location. So I did a second location off of Babcock and 410. And then I ended up doing another one off of Nacogdoches. And anyways, from there, it just grew on and on and on. And really- Was it a good move going with them as a... a, a- like, yeah, so my thing with that is in the business that I was in, in the repair business and the used phone business, you are the guy driving the business, right? You're doing the repairs yourself. You're doing the, you know, evaluating if this phone is worth so much on trade-in, how much you can retail it for. And so you're really stuck working in the business, as we mentioned earlier, right? 
And so I always wanted to look, you know, ahead and how can I scale and how can I get bigger? You know, I've always had pretty big ambitions and wanted to, you know, didn't really know what or where I was going to go, but I knew that I wanted to, you know, be involved in business and have business and be able to scale it and make it bigger. Nice. And so with the retail model with Boost, it's something you can copy and paste. You know, it's, it wasn't a franchise model. They called it like an authorized retailer, but it's basically a franchise. They give you a contract and say, hey, the store needs to look like this, feel like this. You know, here's the hours you have to operate, blah, blah, blah. So I mean, it's basically a franchise. And so with that, there's enough structure that you can copy and paste and move on. Whereas with the the original business that was repairing phones, you teach somebody how to do it, and then they're making you, you know, 300% margin, and they're just getting paid an hourly rate or a commission or whatever. They're basically wanting to go off and do it on their own. So, and so it's really hard to copy and paste that model. You were killing it, though, at the the cell phone game. Oh, yeah. You'd open yeah. multiple multiple locations. You're, you're making higher margins. And now if we look at today, you're in a wildly different place. You own yeah. different types of businesses that don't seem to have anything to do with each other. So what was that transition? So yeah, so I was stuck in the phone business for about a decade. And as the years went on and more people had, you know, there was saturation in the market, more people mm -hmm. had cell phones. Everybody's got a phone from your six-year-old, you know, to the elderly folks. Everybody's got a phone. So there's really <laughs> no new customers out there, right? So at this point in the wireless industry, it's just, uh, you know, how do we get people to switch back and forth? So it's a really... Um, not a very profitable business for the retailer anymore. For the carrier, you know, they've still got the recurring revenue every month. But for a retailer who's having to bring in new business every month, it is extremely difficult. So they've also crunched our margins. So I said all that, and then by the time COVID comes, I'm looking at this thing. I've always tried to have a five-year, at least five-year outlook, you know, what's coming up in the future. And you can kind of just see, you know, being in retail, having 40-some-odd stores with COVID being around is probably not a great idea, right? It's probably not something you want to get stuck in. And so I had some early intuition, and I got lucky, found a guy out of Houston, bought about 65% of that business. And then I just really took some time off. You know, I had worked for about a decade, just all day, every day. Didn't really take much time off, was building that business. Like I, I never really raised money from any private investors, from banks, never took a bank loan until after 10 years of being in business. And so every store we opened was just from profits that were coming from the original stores and turning those over. And so I worked a lot. And so I took about a year off and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so we were obviously in the middle of COVID as well, right? And so, you know, again, thinking in the future, you know, what's probably struggling right now? What's a business that's struggling that I can get into? Because I made a pretty good exit, so I had some mm -hmm. cash I was sitting on, playing with the market. Obviously, the market did some fun things during COVID. You know, it dipped a lot, and then I took a lot of that and, you know, was able to turn that around. So I had some good successes, you know, even while being, you know, off work. So just looking, you know, without any restaurants, but, yeah, I didn't really want to get in the restaurant space. I know that's a hard space, and I wasn't, you know, I'd already worked a lot. I didn't want to go right back into something like that. And so just really took our time to think about something. Originally, it was a bar. Let's do a bar, right? And so I was looking at doing that. And then one thing led to the next. I know some people in the nightlife business, and they ended up hooking me up with. It was uh, Lush Rooftop was the name of the club that I ended up buying. Been there for, I don't know, six or seven years or so. And got hooked up with the owner. And sure enough, you know, COVID kind of did them in. You got really expensive rent. You got a lot of overhead. Mm -hmm. And you just couldn't open at the time, right? Or you could minimally open. And so took that opportunity made the purchase. I kind of knew what I wanted to do with it. As soon as we bought it, closed it down, rebranded it, renamed it. Uh, we had a, a vision of being kind of like a Vegas-style nightclub as far as the production and whatnot goes. Um, so we invested a lot into like the lighting and the sound equipment, uh, more so than what most other clubs here in town do. Mm -hmm. And so that was the vision we had. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, you know what, I'm going to go after it. And I surrounded. One thing I've done really well in my career is surround myself with the right people, right? There you go. And so you need a really good bar manager, somebody who's been around forever and knows what they're doing, especially since I don't know what I'm doing in that industry. You needed a good light and sound production guy because that was kind of the draw of the club. You know, obviously, I don't know anything about that. And so you just put the right people in place. And I had a lot of good advisors and people around me. And we executed really well. And it ended how, up turning out amazing. How are you finding these people? 
Um, so there's a bunch of different avenues, right? A lot of it is, you know, as you get bigger in business and people kind of know about you, people want to be on your team, right? So that's one thing mm -hmm. about, you know, one, treating people well. You know, it's just the basic stuff you should do. Treat people well, pay them right, pay them on time, uh, treat them like humans, you know, yeah. be friends with them rather than just, you know, a dictator to them, right? So that's one way to do it is being somebody that people want to work for, right? Um, and then you've got traditional tools. You've got Indeed and and stuff like that. So it's a combination of both. A lot of word of mouth, a lot of, you know, a lot of people just know who I am now at this point. And so if I ever need to hire somebody, I can just put a real quick Instagram post, hey, looking to hire this position, and I'll get just tons of DMs from, you know, friends and family, just people who follow me, who I don't even know, you know, hey, hit up this guy. Um, that's how we found one of our chefs at the restaurant we just opened, you know, same type deal. We jumped into the restaurant space, had no idea what we were doing there, but, you know, did our research on the back end, kind of figured out, okay, these are the key people we need in place, here's what you need to do. And so, you know, we did some of the traditional hiring through Indeed. Um, once you get one or two employees, typically in an industry, so if it's the bar industry or whether it's, you know, the car lot industry, whatever it is, typically people know each other, right? So, again, yeah. if you're a nice guy and you're fun to work for and, and you, you know, you offer good pay and good benefits, typically, you know, people know each other in that industry. So once you get your foot in an industry, typically, you know, if you're doing the right things, you can pretty easily attract talent. How, so tell me about the, the laundry business and how that's, why did you do that? Yeah, yeah, so laundry is fun. Um, so I was in the nightclub business and obviously, you know, you start flowing a lot of cash. Well, then with that is the burden of having to pay a lot of tax, um, you know, to the government at the end of the year. And so I started just researching strategies online and I found a, uh, it's like an online business influencer who was talking about laundromats. And the reason he did it was for the same reason he had a big Airbnb business flowing a bunch of cash but needed to figure out a way to mitigate some of those taxes and so the laundry business. So with the laundry business, my three favorite things in it, one, it's a really easy business to run. There's like not a ton of employees, right? You've got a couple people mm -hmm. on site and maybe one manager uh, per location. So it's not rocket science. There's not a whole lot of stuff that can go wrong other than, you know, maybe the clothes doesn't get dried fast enough or gets bleached or whatever. But I mean, it's not anything major. Like in the cell phone industry, it's all day, you know, towers are down. There's, you know, payment issues or whatever, right? So it's a really easy business to run. Uh, number two is it flows cash pretty well and it's pretty consistent. So it's not going to be something to where it's not super seasonal. I mean, it's pretty consistent throughout the year. People are always washing their clothes. It's a business that's been around forever. And so it doesn't really seem like it's going away, you know, especially if you've got a good location around uh, apartment complexes or places that don't typically have, you know, their own washer and dryer. Um, and then there's other ways to pick up the business. We're now doing like wash and fold where people come and drop off. We're offering a service where we'll come to your house. You want to leave a bag on your front porch, so kind of like a DoorDash deal. You know, you want to get on demand, you know, your clothes clean. You don't want to do it, you know, for 50, 100 bucks, depending on how much laundry you have. We'll come out once a week to your house, pick it up, wash it, fold it, have it in an airtight bag, and then send it right back to your house. And so basically that chore is knocked out for you, right? So that's one way you can grow it as well. Um, and then my third favorite reason, the reason I got into the laundry business, because of the, the tax uh, benefits you get yeah, from explain. it. explain. Yeah, that's a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's so, the tax benefit? So the tax benefit is there's a code in the tax law, kind of like I'm sure you all have heard about when you buy a SUV that's 6,000 pounds or more, you can mm -hmm. deduct the whole SUV year one, right? I heard that on TikTok. I didn't know if that it was real. It is a real, real deal. And really? it's the same type of thing that applies to this. So with the equipment in the laundromat, you can write off if so if you're buying an existing laundromat you just have to structure your contract correctly to basically allocate a certain amount so if you're buying i'm just going to throw out random numbers if you're buying a million dollar laundromat right how much of that is worth in equipment right so if it's eight hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand whatever you can agree upon on the sale of how much is actually equipment y'all fill out a form it's i don't know what form it is f 
53 something that goes to the IRS. But basically, you're all agreeing to say, hey, to add to that million dollars, 800,000 is allocated towards the equipment, and 200,000 is just goodwill, right? Just repeat customers that are coming in. And so, with that, whatever y'all allocate, you can deduct 100% bonus year one uh, on the equipment. And so, basically, if you've got a business that's flowing, you know, a couple million dollars in cash and you're going to have a high tax bill, you can then take off, you know, that entire amount year one. The second part is if you end up buying the building. So now I'm getting to it where I'm not only buying, you know, existing laundromats, I'm starting up my, you know, new laundromat. So I have to already purchase the equipment. So then at that point, you know what the purchase price is, whatever the manufacturer charges you, that's what the purchase price is that gets deducted year one. And then number two, if you're buying the real estate, uh, you also get tax advantages from purchasing the real estate, right? So hmm. what I love here is I think a lot of business owners, they really rely on their their accountants and their CPA to give them tax yeah. advice. But one thing that I've noticed, you know, there are a few very great exceptions, but it's a rare CPA that's going to go out of their way to inform sure. you of creative options in your taxes. So what I love hearing here is like you found yeah options and you probably have a CPA doing it. Let's be honest, yeah. none of us want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Those forms, you know, too much risk. I wouldn't do it correctly. Um, but you've built a business structure that you've got the cash flow over here and you've got the, the U.S. tax, tax yeah. codes, tax shelter area. It's it's legal. It's, it's a great way yeah. to work your taxes. And CPAs typically aren't there to help you save on taxes. They're typically there to make sure that you're filing correctly and that you or them are not going to get in trouble mm -hmm. from the IRS. So like we work with, I work with ADKF here in town. They're probably one of the bigger firms in town. I think they've got, I don't know, like 55 CPAs uh, on staff. And so when I brought this strategy to them, they looked over and they're like, oh yeah, you're right. So it wasn't something like, you know, they're not proactively telling people about this. They probably weren't even thinking about it, right? Because typically CPAs are the ones that are just making sure stuff is getting filed correctly, right? So what I try to recommend to people who are in business is, you know, have your CPA. That's fine. Don't rely on them for, for tax strategy. Mm -hmm. Hire a tax strategist, right? So there's a lot of tax strategists out there who are different from CPAs. They really don't, you know, some of them will, you know, be CPAs and file your taxes for you. But a lot of them are just, hey, meet with us once a quarter or, you know, twice a year. And let's see what your business, what businesses you're in, what you're doing. And then we can give you different strategies that you can look at to save taxes. So typically, you know, for a good entrepreneur who's making a lot of money, you probably do want to go two different routes, right? Have your CPA. That's fine. And, you know, they can give you some tips, but also go out and find you a good tax strategist who can help you Heck strategize yeah. on how to how to save taxes. Because there's a bunch of different ways out there. Sweet. That's Skyler. a cute bit of advice, yeah. Go yeah, we, we, we are up on your segment for sure. But if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Your uh, you Instagram's huge. Yeah, Instagram's a good one. Um, so any social media platform, it's all the same. It's at and then Skylar B. Moon. So my first name, S-K-Y-L-A-R-B Moon. Awesome. Find me there. I think you got over 280,000, I think, followers. So you know what Pretty you're doing over there. Anyway. I think that's a, that's a very valuable email that you just give out. And, and for entrepreneurs looking to do what you're doing, I mean, it just takes one story that people hear and they're like, hmm, yeah. I could do that too for them to get started on their journey. So I think that's really inspirational. You know, for me, what stands out with Skylar and, and capitalism at its finest, Skylar, <laughs> is if I don't have the data on this, but 15-year-olds that move out on their own, the likelihood of them being successful yeah. as you versus the streets, drugs, alcohol, um, pretty impressive. So good for you. And, it, yeah. you know, sharing your story uh, could be inspiring to, to, you know, other people out there. Yeah, that's the goal. And, and it's, sure. not like you're, it's not like you're doing anything uh, uh, real textbook savvy out of, out of, you're just doing pretty basic stuff. You yeah. listen to a, a guy probably maybe on TikTok on the personal coach no, for regarding sure. a, uh, your, Regular CPAs and uh, 
you know, typical businesses. Now, I don't know about the laundromat anymore because, well, hell, now you have a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That may take care of all that yeah. for you. Yeah. But uh, really nice story. It was, I'm glad it. to be part of it. Yeah, and that's here. what I've always said on different podcasts, different things I've been on, is I'm just the most regular guy in the world who, you know, is out here trying to, you know, one, make a dollar for ourselves and then, you know, help other entrepreneurs and help people that, you know, are wanting to get into business and, and uh, you know, make make more than just a nine to five. Out it's of a lives. hustle, right? We've yeah, got to hustle. You don't need hustle. an MBA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. Yeah, That's the key it's to a it. Hustle. Have a work ethic. Speaking of hustle, next up on the show is Guillermo, the owner of Guillermo's Restaurant here in San Antonio. Guillermo, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So uh, you've run you run two restaurants now, right? It's one Guillermo's, and it's I I, I like to frame it as just an extension as one big one, mm -hmm. uh, because mentally, if I put it as two, it it can be a little bit more challenging. So. Yes, they're two. They're a mile and a half away from each other. Really simple to get to. I'm able to take my electric bike uh, and 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 uh, ride uh, uh, through the cool parts of San Antonio to get there. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what we do. Guillermo's Restaurant on Austin Street and Guillermo's on McCullough. And you've been and around for how long? I opened up in 1995 and sat at the downtown YMCA right after I graduated from college with an accounting degree. Um, oh. and, um, uh, you know what I've been in the business 40 years. Uh, here I am. Uh, sometimes I wish I would have started working in a doctor's office cause I'd probably <laughs> be a doctor, but no, I started washing dishes because some guy that knew my brother called me up and said, Hey, we need a dishwasher. I, I was 12 years old, uh. 1984, uh, 83. And I'm, I was like throwing my football up catching it to myself uh, in the spring. And uh, I said, we need a dishwasher at Windsor Park Mall. That's when uh, down the downtown wasn't like a great era. People were already moving out to the suburbs, and they were developing the suburbs with these great malls mm -hmm. and uh, you know these great stores and these great restaurants. So Windsor Park Mall, if anyone recalls that was really a happening place yeah that was it's a walsam yeah. right yeah and 35 rack spaces yeah. there now yeah. yeah yeah i remember uh, that when i i went through the air force um basic training back in 1988 i remember going to that mall it was like wow this it is was nice. a new area in the city uh i guess in the 70s uh new new stores new homes new subdivisions and going through the cycle it looks like it's taking a dip you can well, still see a, a lot of vacant buildings about there. But when I was there, it was great. It was fun. You know, it was at the expense of downtown. Now, as we're evolving, we're trying to get back into downtown because you just need to look at some simple pictures of downtown San Antonio in the 50s. I mean, I have to remind you guys, San Antonio was the largest city in Texas. Uh, and everything was downtown. And downtown was, downtown was the mall just packed with people walking all around. I think it's easy to forget the San Antonio 300 years old. I, I think yeah. about that when I'm driving around my neighborhood, oh, which point. is like historic. And well, I'm like, whoo. What's crazy is we see the Alamo downtown every time we go down there, but they actually fought a battle at that Alamo. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a it's a crazy story, the Alamo, which, which raises a lot of questions on the oh, story. Yeah, we We've been taught. We don't want to get into that I read that, that book. Oh. But a... Uh, but uh, well, What's this book? I got to get this book. <laughs> oh, it's a great story. If you want to be angry, you can read... Forget the Alamo. Yeah. Forget the Alamo. Yeah. Well, uh, well, even before I can't watch on Netflix. Book, <laughs> when I was in college at UTSA in the 90s, there was this guy from Mexico. And I remember talking about the Alamo, and this still resonates with me. He goes, That's your story. 
He oh. goes, our story is completely different. Oh, yeah. And I was like, well, goes, what, what did he mean? Be ready to our? root for Mexico he... the entire time and know that they uh, don't win. You know, you can ask some simple questions in terms of talking about human nature and uh, valiantly heroes. You know, when you're in battle, man, shit changes. And you look at the story and Bowie and, and, and doing this wonderful thing. No, uh, from, from the perspective of some Mexican historians, no, you had the Alamo defenders running out, striving to survive, not standing up in that battle as, you know, I, I think any one of us, if we're getting oh, shot. Oh, yeah, it's we're gonna, war. Yeah, I mean, it's war. war. <laughs> so um, that's yeah. just a touch of it. So The, the unsexy history of San Antonio. It's done by Warner Brothers, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, I mean you know, it's a it, real it, thing. It, 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 it creates allegiance. It creates pride. Oh, yeah. uh, may create pride to to a Texan. Not all of us here are Texans, but nonetheless, I wanted to touch on the city of San Antonio. That is something to be proud of, that we are 300 years old. Because mm -hmm. let's look at, real quick, what grows slow and how does it die? What grows fast and how does it die? An oak tree takes a long time to grow, but it lasts a long time. Mm -hmm. Some of these other organisms that grow real quick die real fast. And talking about climate change, if you look at our community, there's a good chance that we are the oldest, I think one of the oldest city, cities in Texas, there's a good chance we may be able to weather these storms. Let's look at Phoenix. Phoenix. Let's look at Las Vegas. Cities that grew fast. As humans, we've been around, what, 275,000 years? Consciously intelligent for about 75,000 years? I don't That's know. That's debatable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, uh, well, that's when they claim the, uh, the the conscious revolution came when we sure. started yeah. getting smarter. Light but but aliens. were those guys living in Death Valley? Were they living in, in Phoenix? You know, was it not until we were able to reroute water, AC, that people decided to move in Las Vegas? Phoenix? Yeah, and I think a great example is, is Detroit. It rose really fast yeah. with the car industry, and it fell really yeah. fast as yeah. soon as the car industry got outsourced oh, to different point. countries. Um, and speaking of culture in San Antonio, but you've been here decades and your restaurant specifically has been open for mm. how many years now? Oh uh, gosh, 28 years. I've been in well, business 20 years. years yeah. I mean, a business yeah. that's five years old yeah. is a rare thing and a restaurant that's 28 years old. And it old. still doesn't get any easier. What the <laughs> heck? We well, need to battling. leverage, right? We got to figure out yeah. how to leverage. How do you, well, I don't even know how you hard. leverage in a restaurant business. Is it even possible? You leverage. What do you mean by leverage? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, you, yeah. You do it, right? How did you leverage? I mean, so again, I've been pretty good at putting systems and processes in place. So kind of look at, you know, the hierarchy and who the people are and just making sure you have the right people in place, right? If you've got the best GM who's been, you know, doing this for, you know, X amount of years and has turned, you know, so many restaurants around, that's probably a guy that you want on your team. So you right? have to so empower sure. others to actually yeah. run that business. Yeah. Well, but you have to trust them. Yeah. Too, yeah, I would imagine, is Guillermo's is a, it's a neighborhood staple. It is a San Antonio staple at this point. So what's been the shift from... 28 years ago, you started your restaurant. You were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to where you are now. You've weathered COVID. You're dealing with a lot of different things going on. Gosh, where can we start? <laughs> so you guys may use leverage. You got five minutes. So. I use organization. <laughs> and I've said this before, and this is some advice I give to a few people. 
with organization, you can accomplish anything. If not, there's chaos, right? right? And we all look to organization, right? We all look to the hospitals. We all call the police if we need help. And they're all some, in some form structured or an organization. You create that, and you're going to have employees because not everybody can create it. Mm-hmm. So they seek it. So I understand that responsibility. And then in terms of staff members, yeah, you have to treat them well, right? Um, and uh, you have to... Uh, you have to recognize that they want to do well. You have to recognize that you have to believe them. You have to trust them. Um, and that, that's always a, a, a topic of debate, but um, especially when we're talking about the media, people aren't trusting. I'll simply put it this way. When we go to HEB, are the security guards pointing guns at us to make sure we pay for that item, especially when we go to self-checkout? Mm-hmm. They trust us. Does that mean they don't know people steal? Sure they do. But for the most part, they trust us. When you come to our restaurant, when you come to our restaurant, right, and we feed grandmothers, children, uh, mothers, fathers, they trust us. We take that seriously. So that begs a question across the board. Why not trust the journalist? Don't they, aren't they just like us, that they want to do a good thing, that they have a responsibility to, to journalists? Their, their code is the journalist creed. To have some integrity. Well, the so, good ones, right? Yeah, the good ones, yeah, for the most part. I mean, regarding, I, I do the 80-20% rule, man. If 80% are running this way and 20% are running that way, your odds are run with the 80%. Doesn't mean it's going to lead you to safety, but the odds are really good. So if 80% of the media, and I pay for my media, by the way, and that's what I recommend everyone, pay for your media, excuse me, uh, <laughs> because then you know a different machine is driving it. Um, I'll go that way, right? I go to a restaurant. I simply ask, what's the best thing on the menu? What do most people order? They order this. That's what I'll take. Mm-hmm. The odds are good. I'm going to like it. Uh, that's um, where their margin's at, right? Yeah. The restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Margin's on the special. Well, yeah. Well, but anyway, so I uh, kind of went off a little bit. But yes, <laughs> regarding people, yeah, you have to treat them good. And you, stress is stress. We, we may... You know, Skyler and myself and Mark and, and, and Heather may like to believe that in our head, our stress level is beyond anyone else's because we're the CEO, we're the president. Uh, hogwash. You look at simple primates, right? Look at monkeys, right? You have the, 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 the hierarchy scale. And who are the ones who have the most stress? The ones on the bottom who keep getting their ass beat. Well, right? I found that, like, the longer I'm in business the more I really reinforce the idea that uh, I, the more I stress, it doesn't get any easier. I used to like feel like if I was stressed, it meant I was doing enough. And it turns out it just made my life a lot harder. <laughs> so now it's what can I do? But like I could feel stressed out about it or I could just do it. And it, the difficulty will probably be the same, but right. the stress is you not going to help. you got to find that sweet spot. Stress yeah. is stress. So, mm-hmm. so you know, one thing that, that one of the studies I've, I've read is that they find that the CEOs and the presidents typically have a, li- a lot less stress in some regards. So then the question is why? Systems and processes. Well, yeah. well, well guess yeah. what? I can go work out when I want. I can go eat when I want. Yeah. I can read a book. I can start surfing the Internet when I want. Right? Yeah, we still have our challenges. But the middle managers, they've got to set these. They have to deal with these parameters and these scales. So one of the, t- one of the things we do in our business is we let our staff be in control of their schedule. Mm. Um, if they want to take off, you you are more than welcome to take off. 
just find someone to cover you. We put it on them. Um, and, uh, again, with our staff, one of the more important to me, one of the more important things that we have with our staff is going back to structure is the routine of things. And the conversations we'll have in my office are trying to synchronize. And I hope this resonates with, with, with our listeners and with us. I try to synchronize your unconscious with your conscious. And when you can synchronize those two, God damn, it's so easy. I can listen to my AirPods and cut that pizza because a pizza cutter is always there, already there. It's like putting the seatbelt on when mm-hmm. you get in your car. Yeah. You don't have to think about it. It's that time we're, tra- we're driving home, but we're thinking about Mary Lou and, hey, why am I driving to work? Yeah. Your unconscious is guiding you to work, right? You're not driving to the murderer's house. <laughs> Well, I think that's something interesting to note about like people in an entrepreneurial role where you do have to personally grow. You have to take those steps to always be expanding your knowledge base, learning new things. It, the job requires it, the the job of being a business owner. And so that may be that difference. It's those atomic habits. It's the slight edge. It's leaders are readers. You are reading things. You're learning things. You have right. that flexibility and the knowledge that there's opportunity out there to go get, you just have to figure out how to know what you don't know yet. And so that's what's interesting. And we probably did ourselves a disservice scheduling you guys on the same episode. Well, <laughs> it's a responsibility There's so much as well. to talk about. Well, one yeah. of my goals is to actually do deep, deeper dives. We'll just have one guest and we can kind of go farther because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, 30 minutes goes by really, really fast. Yeah. And we're actually over a little bit. But we do need to wrap up. Uh, Guillermo, it's a great conversation. You are a thinker. Right. You, you go past the surface. You like to go deeper. And I like that. And, and Skylar, you're really, really good at, you know, approaching things in a way that makes sense yeah. from a common sense perspective sure. and, and just getting after. Plus, you've got a lot of energy. How old are you now? <laughs> 32. 32. Yeah. yeah. Dude, you got so much just life. Starting. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. As we wrap up, uh, Guillermo. So if folks want to go to your restaurant, where is it and how do they? Uh, you're on Yelp and all the things, right? Just go to the internet, type in Guillermo San Antonio, and something's bound to pop up. Right. Yeah. right? Don't read the reviews. Don't read, <laughs> don't read my responses. Well, you're re- uh, over 2,700 of them at 4.4 on Google. That's pretty yeah. good. So, no. I mean, a restaurant that has a five star review, I'm suspicious. Yeah. There's no one that's always happy with a restaurant. No one. Well, that's... you know, 80 20, right? Zemans, mm-hmm. Elk Sapiens, we are. Uh, there you go. Right that's there, four man. stars. It's not bad. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, yeah, there we go. All right. As we wrap up the show, quick reminder check out our latest podcast or catch video versions of the show anytime by visiting our website at satalkradio.com. That's going to be it for us. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next one. Thanks, guys. Good job.